0: Are listening to the Secret Sauce Podcast, unveiling life's hidden recipes for success, happiness, and fulfillment by finding the unique ingredients that shape individuals' extraordinary journeys. Hello, Baron. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? This is Lynn Bush. I don't think y'all have met before today. Uh, she's my co host here in, on the Secret Sauce Podcast. We thank you for coming and sharing some of your time with us today. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are?
1: Well, I'm Baron Cornelson. Uh, I'm a business owner of a small business. Um, hard work and dedication.
0: Small business owner. Yeah, we, we we talk about a lot about how the secret sauce for being a business owner relates to so many different facets of, of real life. And that was part of what uh, I wanted you to hear. I've, I've known Baron personally for for a little over 10 years. Um, I've been a part of several of his small businesses. He may own one today, but he's owned many since I've known him. Um, And we wanted to hear how you keep, keep it going. Not that every business worked out. There's lots of failures in life that leads to lots of successes. That's just life. But we wanted to know, why didn't you stay down? You've had lots of opportunities to stay down i mean yeah how long were you in the hospital over your leg you want to share the story um so uh two days share some (laughs) of it not not all the
1: details (laughs) two days before halloween last year i broke my ankle or my leg and dislocated my ankle uh had to go in for surgery and they put in hardware in my leg um probably about two months later going through the recovery uh it got infected pretty bad uh it was to the bone it didn't penetrate the bone but it was to the bone so i had to go in had several more surgeries cutting out the infection uh once i was able to get stable it was pretty much the
0: they think you were going to lose your leg at one point
1: initially it did say they didn't tell me that but uh later on later after the recovery from the infection, the doctor said he did think I was going to lose my leg initially.
0: Yeah, they told me when you went back into the hospital, they called and told me that they thought you might lose your leg. Yeah. They probably didn't tell me intentionally but Uh because I wasn't going to lose my leg. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like my eyes. I was telling my eye doctor today. I was yesterday. I was at the eye. Do not interrupt your story, but she was, I went into eye surgery, but I told her I can't be me without my eyes. And I know all the things you've done in your life successfully, I, I'm, you couldn't be you without a leg. Right. And so I, I felt your pain that day because, you know, if I couldn't talk and I couldn't see, I don't know how I would be me today. But anyway, so so, so you, you made it through it. How long was your recovery? How I think long all, were you off your
1: feet? I think altogether it was roughly about five and a half months. Wow.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah, uh, but I did have a little knee dolly, you know, I oh, was what? able to, a knee dolly, you know, where you put your knee on, it's kind of like a little four wheeler, you rest your knee on it, you know, uh, it's a lot more difficult than it looks. <laughs> and the thing is very, uh, it's pretty unstable. Can't lie. I've had a few little crash and burns on it, but, um, I made it through it. Yeah.
0: I'm here. And did you become more humble because of it? Hmm. You know, to be honest with you... You know, lots uh, of people say when they, they, they have near-death experiences, they, they come out of it feeling different. Um, did you feel different thinking you were going to lose your leg now that you've got it? I don't feel I mean, much do, different. Do you trim your nails? Do you get it manicured? Do you mean, do anything special for it? You got a special sock for that side or what?
1: No, I don't. Uh, I, don't I really don't feel anything different. Um, I think that uh, my body slowed down a little bit. Since then, I think that uh, I don't necessarily know because I ain't quite in shape as I was before I broke my leg, or it's just something that traumatic. You know, when you're faced with when your body's faced with something that traumatic, it just automatically slows down. But I don't I don't think that I necessarily have the uh, not it's not the drive it's not mentally it's physically I don't necessarily have the physical um, pace that I used to have mm-hmm. even on like. Just normal day to day stuff, mm-hmm. you know, which is kind of weird. I've never, I've never experienced anything like that before. So
0: why didn't you quit?
1: I just. Uh, I mean, you were down and out.
0: Like, you know, failure is just not an option for me. Well, why? What's the secret sauce of why failure is not an option for you? There's an I answer think, there. I think
1: really it's, uh, it's for me it's kind of complex. Uh, it starts off as a child. Uh, my mom. Was never really that successful. Uh, We grew up pretty much grew up in poverty till I was a teenager. She started making a little bit better money then. Single parent. um, My mom's a pretty hard person. She's not necessarily strict, but she is. She was very hard. And uh, you know, through all the stuff that she went through, you know, growing up on minimum wage, her making minimum wage, and and uh, how poor we were, she never made excuses. You know, she never really complained. Mm -hmm. I don't remember her complaining or making excuses ever, you know. And then I did, her mother was actually very successful. She was an entrepreneur. She started a tax business way, way, way back in the day when she was younger. I started off a little car table in a grocery store and then became very successful. I opened up an office with multiple employees. Very driven woman,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. That uh, was your grandma? That was my mom's mom. Yeah, my grandmother. Uh-huh. And uh, she, uh, she became... Pretty infamous around the Lake Worth area, all local small businesses, because she started doing all their payroll, all their bookkeeping, all our taxes, and a very driven. So so, um, you know, it was like, I kind of got the inspiration from my mom, because, you know, she's my single parent, to never make excuses and don't complain, and then seeing my grandma with hard work that you can become successful.
0: When did you own your first business? When did you, you, you start working for you? So kind of a funny story. I used to as a kid, if I wanted something, I'd have to go to my
1: grandma and ask her for it, you know, because we didn't have money, mm-hmm. you know. Uh-huh. So uh, and I would go my mom my grandmother owned five acres in a little town Lakeside, just between Lake Worth and Hazel. And um so if I wanted something, she would pretty much always give it to me, but I'd have to work for it. You know, uh-huh. she'd make me come to her house and do stuff, you know, usually it was mowing. But uh, because she had one acres completely isolated from the other four and it was beautiful, all St. Augustine grass. You know, I'd come out there and mow and weed eat and edge and uh, and just whatever else you want to do around the house. You know, sure. and I, used, I used to do this as a kid growing up, you know, and at one point in time, I went to her. I was probably around seventh or eighth grade, maybe just a little bit younger. And uh, she said, you know what, Baron, I'm going to take you down to here to Sears. I'm going to buy you a lawnmower. So you have the opportunity to go make you some money. So mm-hmm. I said, "All right." So uh, she did. She t- and I had to work for it. I worked the whole weekend at her house. She took me down to Sears, bought me a little lawnmower. And I started cutting grass around my neighbor's house as a you know a young teenager, and uh, you know I didn't have weed or edger or blowing out like that, just mowing. And um, I had me three or four yards, you know. And for somebody that young, that's you know that's dollars. $100, that was you know for me that was a lot of money back oh, then. Yeah. You know, <clears> so I really looked forward to it. And I kind of did it off and on, uh,
0: you know, until I got older. Um, and then uh, I had two really distinct moments that I, I remember working for myself. Selling cinnamon sticks in elementary school, you know, the toothpicks. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, you get the oil from the pharmacy and then you put a couple of drops in the Ziploc bag and with some toothpicks and they were 25 cents back then. And then David Parahan. i uh, um my stepdad my mama just got married we weren't big fans of i wasn't big fan of my stepdad and certainly kind of like you said you know we didn't grow up with a bunch of money and they certainly didn't spend it on their kids when they did have money and so um um they told me i couldn't have a tennis racket i wanted and i was a great tennis player so I took the lawnmower where they were at work and I went and mowed a bunch of lawns. I went and bought the tennis racket from David Perhan's dad. It was a New Prince wide body tennis racket. First, nobody had a wide body back then. I think it cost me $200, so it was super stupid expensive in 1989 or 88, whenever that was. And um, I came home and they took my tennis racket and I got grounded and I thought, I have done something so right that people grounded me for it. I've got to figure out what it was, and I'm gonna keep doing it because I was my own boss, regardless of them grounding me, taking my tennis racket, a bot. I did it on my own, and there was a there was a light that lit inside of me that day with David Parahona I'll, I'll never forget that moment being grounded, having my tennis rack. The whole memory just sits there. And I think that was my, my pivotal moment. I don't necessarily know
1: if that was necessarily my, I don't think my pivot moment came to that point yet. Uh, it kind of taught me that, you know, if I wanted something, I could go get it. It might not necessarily be, you know, I might not necessarily be extremely successful right off the bat, but I could I knew that my effort could go out there and I could generate cash, you know, or money right then, you know, if I just got work for it. Mm-hmm. So as I got older, uh, my very first job was working at Chuck E. Cheese. Mm-hmm. I started off just busting tables and doing the little check where you check the hands in and out of the door and um and dressing up as Chucky.
0: <laughs> you dressed up as Chucky. <laughs> I had to
1: dress up as Chucky a few times, you know, and uh Can
0: we have Chucky on the show sometime Uh, in the future? I'll get the outfit.
1: (laughs) And then, uh, you know, by 17, I was already a manager. Um, I was the youngest, highest-paid assistant manager in the company. And I started off, before getting promoted, I started off with the White Salmon Chuck of Cheese. And um, I got thrown in the kitchen after about two months of working there, had no idea how to cook anything. Never worked in a restaurant before, had no idea what it was like, what to do, you know, didn't know any recipes, any pizzas, because I just always ordered, you know, meat lovers or pepperoni as a kid, and never even paid attention, you know, and I got stuck back there, and I was in there with a bunch of veteran guys, and it was extremely competitive, like, everybody in there, every day was competing. In, at and Chuck E. Cheese. At Chuck E. Cheese. Making pizza. Making pizza. Extremely competitive. Uh-huh. You know, they make their dough from scratch. And Chuck E. Cheese actually was really a good ingredient. like top notch ingredients. Did, on did
0: you computer. toss it? Were you a tosser?
1: I was able to toss it. it took me a while. <laughs> uh, it took me it took me a couple of years before I actually got to making the dough process because I was working while I was in school. Mm-hmm. And I make all the dough in the morning, so I never really made dough. So I started off just wetting, you know, getting a little hand towel and getting it wet and tossing it before I ever started making dough, mm-hmm. and so when I started making dough it made it a lot easier, you know, but you know it was it was extremely competitive, you know, and I was the the new boot in there and I was younger much younger than everybody else, so I had to work harder to keep up, you know, and eventually I was that better in person you know and, and uh then i when I promoted they transferred me to another Chuck of cheese it was complete opposite I mean I walked in there and I was like mountains above everybody else like the skill set over there was just ridiculous it was a filling store everybody over there just was uh not very good there was no competitive nature so I just stood way out above everybody else it made me start thinking about like just the just the effort you know where I went from basically I wasn't top ended up being a top tier person but still kind of normal you know, a normal uh-huh. setting because uh-huh. everybody was really good because yeah. everybody strived every day to be the best over there to walking into an area, you know, a different environment where everybody was below average, you know, and everybody, and there's nobody new over there, yeah. you know, these are just, these are regular, these should be the senior employees over there, you know, and they're, they're below average. And so I made me really think about just the minimum amount of effort that it would take just every single day to stand out, you know, and, and it made me really realize that it's not necessarily that my skill it's it's not necessarily that I'm that much more skilled for anybody else, or I might not even be been skilled for them. You know, there might have been people there who was much more skilled for me, but my effort pushed me to be much uh-huh. better than the rest of them just because
0: I tried. You know, I wanted to try. So Lynn and I talk about that a lot on the show, that um, we think that's one of the driving failures of today in our society is, is where's the effort? Exactly. Uh-huh. Just the it, effort. Just, just Give me the effort. Just try. Listen, That's let even, me let me correct you when you failed. Don't let me talk to you about doing it. not
2: Don't even do it. Drive. Just yeah. the effort.
0: Just the effort. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just too easy to make excuses these days. Mm-hmm. But why? We 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 want to know the why because we think if we can figure out the why we can come up with a secret sauce for it.
1: For me personally, because I catch myself doing sometimes and I strive not to. But it's it's today is such a faster pace of life. It's so easier for a parent to be so wrapped up in everything and not, it's hard to slow back down and pay attention to them details and you start, you know, making excuses why your kids didn't do something perfect or you overlook some stuff instead of telling them like my mom would do, you know, she'd get on to me every single time. Like I said, she wasn't really strict, but she was hard. Yeah, You know, if I, if I was smacking when I was a kid, she'd come by, hit me in the back of the head, you mm-hmm. know, oh, yeah. and get on to me, you know. So it was just little stuff like that, you know. Make sure you wash your plate after you put it up. Make sure you put your plate up after you eat, you know. And uh-huh. no, no, it sounds kind of strict because kids just don't do this these days. You do the dishes at home uh, now? Uh-huh. No, my youngest son does. Uh-huh. But before he started doing it, I always did all the dishes.
0: Uh-huh. Um, that was just one of my chores. But he does them now, and uh, see, it, I kind of went the opposite. The the things that my parents forced me to do growing up. I kind of I love my wife because she she takes out the trash. I don't mean to admit that to anybody, but but I hated it growing up. So (laughs) instead of asking me twelve times to take out the trash, we I do other things. I do a lot of cooking around the house Mm -hmm. and stuff. So she, but my wife takes out Mm -hmm. the trash. (laughs) I was like I was like I did my part. I just it's not the trash.
1: (laughs) I was like twelve or thirteen. My mom was making me do all my own stuff. I wash my own laundry. Do my own dishes. Mm -hmm. You know, make my own plate. She did all the cooking, but make my own plate. I mean, make my own room, wake myself up for school. Yeah. You know,
0: get ready on my own. My mom was good at those things. Maybe not guiding us correctly in other ways, but she was a good homemaker for sure.
1: I don't know if my mom just didn't want to do it It made me do it, or she was actually teaching me something. I don't really know what the madness behind it was. Uh But either way, it made me learn, like, at a young age, that I need to be able to do all that stuff Mm -hmm. on my own. I think it really helped when I got older. You know, 'Cause when you get used to doing stuff like that, you don't there's no room for excuses not to do, I think, you know?
0: I I agree with you. Yeah. She agrees with you. I, I totally agree. But we agree think with you. anybody below your age group doesn't agree with you <laughs> at all. And like I said, I think a lot of it comes I in like... I think even people our age, Baron, I mean, we run into I mean I mean, how many people of your graduating high school class, even if I didn't graduate, so I don't know. But of the class I was supposed to graduate. Um, I don't know of maybe two handfuls of ultra successful, mildly successful people. Most people are just everyday Americans and everyday Americans is, is great. I've got a lot of friends on my Facebook that smile, you know, and, and, and to me to, to get there every day, I want to be happy. I don't, we talked about it. We don't believe, I know you don't, that other people control your happiness. You control it. You, you're, you are your own destiny. Um, you just have to have a lot of teammates to to get there, and you want to love and nurture them. I, I get that, but we we're, we're firm believers, and you know I believe in God's grace, and I believe He gave me the ability. So go damn, go get it, because that you're sinning if you're not doing it. Um, but we don't we we don't see the same, and I don't see it in my employees. I know you don't see it in your employees. I don't see it in. I mean. I don't see it in other relationships. I'm I'm witness to a relationship that's just two or three years younger than Jenna's and I's. And it's a disaster. And, And a lot of their relationships are disasters. My employees that I've had over the last four or five years at my office, I don't know any of them that would have a... Certainly wouldn't be able to date my wife or myself the way that they treat each other inside of relationships. And I don't know what changed all that you know i, I heard this morning that that 73 percent of american third graders cannot read on grade level
2: oh that's tragic
0: and i'm a firm believer that america got to where we're at today because we had everybody got an education
2: mm-hmm.
0: other countries is went in the same way and there's got to be a correlation between hard work and I didn't. I wasn't smart. I, I my parent. My house life was a disaster, so I was a disaster throughout all of my schools, and and nobody was able to keep up with the task of keeping up with me. You know, I was. I wanted to do more, and then if they didn't have it, I was bad, and so we. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of sad people. I think
2: something, there's going to be
0: a lot of people that don't know how to smile anymore.
2: Something that changed was. Oh, no matter what your home life was, <clears throat> when you went to school, there was order and there was discipline, and there were people teaching you good good life habits. That has changed. Yeah, The schools do not provide that. I don't think way. they have
0: home ec in school anymore.
2: Oh, no, they don't. How don't did I do you
1: take know? 12 home ec classes in high school? 12. 12. Wow. <laughs> you 12 well home ec <laughs> classes, and, and 11 of them were cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I had this home ec teacher. She was a, she was a big woman, uh-huh. and uh, Miss Barnett. I'll never forget her. Very, very, very uh, not only a special woman to me, but very just nice, very smart. Um, just really catered to the students, you know, in uh-huh. home ec. And uh, there'd be times where I would like. I'd get frustrated in a class or something, and I would I would leave the class and just go sit in home. And she let me cook something to eat and sit there and talk <laughs> with her. I could sit. She had a little office. I could sit inside her office. And uh, yeah, she was uh, she was pretty significant as far as me being in high school. But uh, I just think these days these these kids uh, I think one is life is so busy now. It's harder for us to pay attention to the details as parents to notice everything like our parents did. Is one. But they also they see people become super successful over almost nothing you know like internet or uh-huh. uh, you know like like for example like uh like rappers these days you know and they think that you know that, that they can do that and rappers these-
0: what what about that country western guy who's that hillbilly who wrote that? hillbilly anthem out in the middle of the woods and now he's had like 27 million views and sold 13 million songs on right. on apple in like like seven days like mm-hmm. holy cow
1: but there's probably a million
0: other people who did it and wasn't oh. successful oh there's probably there's probably a billion people and they don't
1: that. and these youngsters they don't they don't understand that they don't understand like yeah. that's i you know it is comes with hard work and dedication but it's a lot of luck and stuff like that i think it's a lot of being in the right place at the right time, the people who you know, you know, the platforms you come from. But they think I think that it's it's too easy for them to grasp the idea that if they could just figure out the platform, that they could be that person, but like you said, there's a one to being people have tried that already and was not uh-huh. successful. So
0: That's right.
1: You know, and I think they get so stuck on that they can become super successful with a minimum amount
0: of effort. It just doesn't work that way. No, I think success takes I think it takes all your effort. I think I, I think it takes a ton of effort because you've got to you've the the so much of your effort is is the failure part of it. 90% of your effort doesn't work out for you. And so you've got to be willing to put in a ton of effort because you're just hoping that 10%. If you if you think about all the wealthy people and all the wealthy companies and the people that hit all the stock home runs, that was that was one in ten one in twelve one in 14 there's a number there that you could equate to it that they did this 14 different ways and one of the 14 finally hit um, you know my wife and I are involved in real estate you're involved in some real estate and and, and some some other small businesses and you dibble dabble in this we've got a bunch of stuff in crypto but crypto isn't my my I'm not retiring on crypto it's not in my plan i think there's some great opportunities that'll come over the future with what we have um but uh um, our life is what we do on a daily basis is how we earn an income not not hoping for a one-off you know we we're doing you know you're here with us on our podcast and so we're doing this to go change a bunch of lives not to become a one-hit wonder
1: I think a big difference is, is is what the younger generations don't see is, is people like you and I we got to, we're involved in 20 one-offs, mm-hmm. you know 25 one-offs and then, at the same time or even if it's just 10 we've done went through the other 20 yeah. you know recycle new ones you know and, and they're so so fixated on just one and thinking that and when that one fails, they don't know how to recover from it. yeah you know so it's like you know it goes from super motivated to almost depression. You know, they don't know how to overcome that. So, you know, when we was kids, it was like the things they didn't teach in school was how to overcome unemployment. And they didn't teach credit, you know. So we had to learn that. We had to overcome that. We had to make the mistakes. We had to figure out how to get a new job if we got laid off or fired or whatever the scenario was from job to job. And we had learned how to manage our credit correctly. They didn't teach you that in school. Now these days, it's way beyond that. You know, they don't. T- I don't see how really they teach you how to overcome anything in life. Personally,
0: I don't teach bank accounts. I don't think. I don't think mm-hmm. they teach interviews. I mean, I couldn't imagine some of these these kids that I run into. I can imagine them going and interviewing for a job, but
2: but so they're out there. What was your after you left your first job? What happened then?
1: So, uh, to be honest, um, I kind of struggled. Uh, I was actually fired from Chuck E. Cheese for establishing a relationship with an employee, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, it was pretty devastating to me because I really felt like I had really dedicated— I worked for the company four and a half years. Uh-huh. Never had a write-up, never uh-huh. done anything wrong. You know, was always above and beyond, uh-huh. you know, most people around me. Um, got tremendous amount of recognition from, from uh, the vice president of the company to area managers— Always, you know, I even changed the entire recipe at Chuck E. Cheese for making dough, uh, which was kind of by mistake, but that's a different story. But, you know, I was I was pretty revelational in Chuck E. Cheese. I believed in my, uh-huh. you know, personally. Uh-huh. Maybe I wasn't on a big scale, but for me, I was. And it was it really meant a lot to me. And they fired me over establishing a relationship with an employee, which was absolutely, it was kind of ridiculous. I put myself in a bad situation. But when I left Chuck, when they fired me with Chuck E. Cheese, uh. I got hired on several other restaurants after that, and it was really hard for me to to really fit in anywhere else. You uh-huh, know, uh-huh. I think it was a little bit of a confidence issue because I came from somewhere where I was, I felt like not only was my future secure working there, but I was, you know, I was almost on a pedestal. I put myself on a pedestal, and then go from that to the to bottom of the barrel again and just not really fitting in anywhere, it was so. It was, why didn't you quit? You know, it's like uh, like goes back to my roots. You know, my, I never see my mom make excuses. I never heard her complain. It was just if it doesn't work, try something else. You know, and then, and then always seeing my grandma being successful and wanting to be like that, I just felt like that was a pretty rough period for me as I I got hired on at Steak and L as a manager. I didn't like
0: it there. No, like, you know, they're building Steak and L again. Oh, they're starting it's them back. Up? back. It was Steve It was pretty cool. I they think, made everything from scratch. I think North Carolina, South Carolina is getting the first one, but there's a plan to have one here in Dallas within mm-hmm. the next eighteen months. I like steak and it a lot. Uh-huh. Or I did like it. Well, we're. I think we were all. We can all just a minute. We all liked the salad bar. That the salad, it. Bar it was was salad bar was good. They had the soup <laughs> salad bar too.
1: Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But I went from there. I got hired on at uh, Spring Creek Barbecue as a manager. And the the entire manager staff is uh, all salary and they work you to death. And from there, like a Chuck of cheese, there's, you, you, you overlap like an hour or two as a manager, but it, mm. significantly one manager's got one shift. And it, at Spring Creek, there would be two managers there, a minimum of two managers there all the time, from open to close be at least two managers there. And throughout the middle of the day, there'd be there'd be a, somebody working a mid-shift. So during the middle of the day, there's three, there's three managers there mm. every day. So it just felt like, for me, like I, I couldn't really have that control And that control of running something was kind of like, I felt like at that point in my life was like my skill set. And I just didn't fit in there either. So it was kind of a little bit of a struggle. Um, I went through some ups and downs and I, I started cutting grass again. It was just easy for me to just go out there and get quick money. Wasn't a lot of money, but I could get it really fast. You know, it was easy for me. So um i started cutting grass again i told myself that if i just dedicate a little bit of time into this that i could probably do something with it i've seen a bunch of very successful lawn companies and told myself if they could do it why couldn't i right right so uh i ended up landing a job as assistant manager at pizza hut working night shift while to help pay for everything while i was starting my own lawn service this was back in 2002 and uh
0: do you still have that lawn service today?
1: Still have it today. Uh-huh. What's it called? Uh, Go ahead it's called it Keep, it uh-huh. Keep It
0: Green Services. Uh huh. Keep It Green. When I wanted to, when I wanted to, how, about, I, how are you keeping anything green right now?
1: I got to get control of that clock in my customers' houses. <laughs> the you know the uh, the box inside your garage that monitors the water.
2: Right.
1: Um, and most of my customers, I do have access to it, and I monitor their watering. Um, there's a little bit of science to it. You can't overwater a yard, you know, and the customers don't want to see water run down the street, but, uh, it's not that difficult, but there's a little bit of science to it. And I do monitor most of my customers watering. So that does help. Um, and then the last year I've been really focusing on pushing fertilizing, you know, and maintenance fertilizing because really to fertilize it's something you need to maintenance all year round. One fertilizing is not going to help. So if I can, if I can get a customer to pay for the fertilizing service, and I can manage that clock, I can usually keep the yards pretty nice. Um, But yeah, when I was in 2002, I wanted to get DBA. I thought to myself that I wanted the opportunity to create something bigger than just cutting grass. So instead of labeling my business Keep It Green Lawn Care, which was on some of my marketing stuff already, I decided to name it Keep It Green Services. That way it would sound more like I provide much more services than just cutting grass. Because I knew at some point in time that if I'm gonna continue growing this business, that it's got to be something bigger than just cutting grass. So
0: that's where we're at. Keep and it green many, services. And and how many different entities inside of Keep It Green are there?
1: Uh, I mean we do a lot of stuff, but primarily I would say three. Yeah. Uh, I my lawn service one is lawn maintenance, um, property maintenance as far as lawn care goes, and then uh, we I try to separate my fertilizing as a monthly service. Mm-hmm. Um, as a separate business on its own. I bill out monthly instead of every service. Mm-hmm. So I try to I tell my customers, everyone that wants to sign up for the for the fertilizing, that it, it's it's it basically it's its own separate business. Even mm-hmm. though I'm kind of running the same, you know, we do it, we fertilize on the truck as we're going through the neighborhoods usually. But I'm trying to separate it and get it set up where it, it will be one day its own route and its own person doing it so it'll be a separate business. And last year we kind of soft started a pest control company um so and i'm trying to do that the exact same way you know it's it's going to eventually be its own entity and from the outside looking in i'm i've initially when i first started it i've told all my customers this is a complete separate service you know mm-hmm. it's going to build separately then again right now we're all running everything off one truck but within your mm-hmm. the future they'll be each one will be its own route own person doing it instead of uh-huh. all everybody doing it uh-huh. so how come
0: you didn't talk about your santa claus stuff
1: Oh, Christmas lights? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's uh, my favorite part. That's, that's actually a good one. I can't believe I didn't think about this initially because Christmas light time, uh, we provide professional, professional custom cut Christmas lights that fit your house perfect. Um, we use all commercial-grade equipment,
0: materials. Um, it's actually most profitable time of the year for me. Uh-huh. Uh, we yeah he always goes on it's hard to find him in february he's on vacation somewhere (laughs) we uh christmas lights is huge for us um and
1: the way i set it up is it's a little bit different than most companies most companies will just sell you the lights up front and you guys store them or they'll charge you to store them for you what we do is we do at least to own for three years for the first three years they're installed up until the first three years they're installed i own the lights you just lease them but after the third year they're installed you own the lights so, uh, this is a business plan I wanted to do just because every year I seen like how drastically much I was growing each year hanging lights. And I figured I could probably grow this business big enough to sell it at some point if I decide. So I figured that if I can set it up on a lease to own for three years, I can show a revenue for three years and each new customer, you know, and I've got everything labeled. Every, everybody's lights is custom, uh, got their own little tote and labeled, I mean, it's everything's labeled to the T. So I've got all the documentation on each customer to all the way down to the plans, exactly which way the lights go, where they're installed on the house. So uh, it's huge. We installed lights. Actually, last year, we 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 did install the year before last was my most successful year in lights, mainly because last year I broke my leg and I was. I had a guy who was it was has experience hanging lights. I had a guy who was brand new, and I didn't know if me not being able to be there, you know, all the time, mm-hmm. that uh, how much they'd be able to maintain without me being there all the time. Because usually I'm the one I'm there every house and I'm coordinating everything, uh-huh. you know, and that's it's. For people who don't have a lot of experience hanging lights, I mean, it's the whoever's coordinating everything is a huge position, you know, because you got to uh-huh. make sure the lights are in the wrong, the right direction for electricity, uh-huh. and so on, and make sure they fit, because we're custom cutting them to fit certain sections of the house, so they're not going to fit anywhere else on that house. Right. So, whoever's coordinating is huge. So I was kind of nervous um, about how well it would work out without me being able to be there all the time and being able to do everything I normally do. So last year I didn't do any advertising or marketing. So we actually kind of regressed a little bit last year. We uh, we did 138 houses
2: wow.
1: last year, but that's why like, it was seven houses less than we did the year before. Uh-huh. You know, I was potentially tr- planning on, I mean, I usually pick up about 50 new houses a year. You know, I've progressively been doing this every year. And I was planning on, to, that was like my milestone was to get at least 50 more houses last mm-hmm. year. You know, previous me breaking my ankle and everything happened that way, but um, it is a... I mean, it's just been growing fast every single year.
2: Do you have a grid for each house so they know, so that people know how how to place the lights?
1: So we don't have a grid, or we don't have like any blueprint of the house, nothing. But we do, um, we do write down like uh, on each plug. There's like a flat surface, Uh uh and we'll write like uh, like L F for Uh left front, Uh and then it would be you know, then we'll. They'll be most of them are connected together on each run. Each run, right. it's not together. They're separated by right. basically extension cord, right? Then we'll write like top peak or left peak. Okay. So it'd be two initials. Mm-hmm. It'd be left or right. And then it'd be the second letter will be whatever it's describing, you know. So it's pretty easy to figure out once uh, somebody explains to you, you know, what you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. Like far as employee goes, I can explain them what each letter means. It's pretty easy mm-hmm. to, to figure it out. But if you run one backwards it the whole thing is a disaster, you know. Right, right. So you got to understand.
2: Right.
0: And so tell me about your college education. I never made it to college. Uh-huh. So uh, how how do you know marketing and finance and bill paying and growing and escalation? How, how do you know how, how how do you know all that? Don't you have to learn that in college?
1: I think that uh a lot of it is is uh, trial and error, the mistakes I've made, but uh, working for other people. Mm-hmm. You know, the majority of my career, up until the last few years, I've always ha- you know had a other some other job while working my you know building my own business that, that helped fund it and keep me afloat and stuff like that. And um, in every position, almost every company I've ever worked for, I've been in some kind of management position, so I've I've been able to learn. Uh, different things, uh, like when I was working at Chuck E. Cheese, starting off my very first job, I never did uh, pay, or never did payroll, but I did do scheduling. I did all the food and beverage inventory, and I did all the, f- the food and be- beverage orders. So right off the bat, that that kind of helped me understand the logistics of, you know, on a mild basis, understanding logistics of some parts of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of businesses, I mean, in the general idea, you can. Um, kind of run them all the same, you know, to a certain degree. I mean, obviously, it gets more complex and uh, specific for each business. But initially, on a managed position, I think a lot of most businesses are all ran the same as far as employees' goes, logistics of the business, and just understanding how everything works. Uh, pretty cool story. Uh, when I worked at Pizza Hut, like I said, I was just assistant manager there. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I was trying to start my, my lawn service in, and, and I was growing my lawn service then. I had a couple opportunities where they came to me once, put me to the to a general manager, and I turned it down just because I didn't want to work the extra hours because I needed the mm-hmm. extra hours to, to devote to my own business. But what they did do is after the second time I turned down a promotion to become the GM, they started sending me to failing restaurants
2: mm-hmm.
1: to help figure out what was going mm-hmm. wrong with the restaurants. And because of the fact I had such a strong uh, background in the kitchen or production-wise of the uh-huh. business, it was easy for me to figure out what was going on because usually – if you've got... Especially when you got a business that's such... It's already had so much marketing. has a stability foundation like Pizza Hut. You know, or something like online, like Chuck E. Cheese. It's easy to figure out if you're not making the money, why?
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, you either got people coming in the door or you don't. And if you got people coming in the door, why are you not making money? Well, for me, I'd always start in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I'd always make sure that my cooks were trained correctly. That they're making products correctly. That stuff's not going in the window messed up. To minimize my cost right there. And then... Once I realize my kitchen, once I know and I'm confident my kitchen guys are trained right, right, I can do a food and beverage inventory and check out what my costs are. Mm-hmm. If my, if I know my cooks are cooking correctly, and if my costs are still too high, somebody has to be stealing. Uh-huh. Somebody's selling uh-huh. stuff without ringing it up, right? Uh-huh. Or people are just eating for free. You're not supposed to. But food's going somewhere.
2: Uh-huh.
1: You know, if we're making it correctly and we're not messing orders up and it's going out the window and they're still too high, then we know somebody's doing something wrong, you know, and then it just goes, I've already eliminated the kitchen. Now I just got to go to the cashiers and pay attention to what they're doing. Right. You know, are they ringing stuff up wrong? Are they stealing, you know, are they, are they, are they sending orders back and not ringing it up or whatever's going on? And, uh, Right then, that, I mean, that right there is like, especially with a restaurant, that's, that's 80% of a filling restaurant's right there, uh-huh. you know. And then after that, it's got to be your personalities, you know, customer service, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But the product has to be right, and the costs have to be right. If, and then everything else after that is just fundamental stuff. Just make sure your customers, you know, your employees are smiling, doing their job, you know, being presentable. But it was easy for me to go back to the production and go back to the basics and work my way up to figure out why the restaurant was filling, so, um, yeah, I don't know exactly what the question was, but that original question.
0: No, I was asking you how you know so much and don't have a college degree. Uh, I know how hard you've worked in life, and I know all the different businesses that you own. I don't know everything about you, but but I know a lot. Um, and, and I'm always amazed on how many business owners I run into on a daily basis that are the mom and pops around the Country that don't have college educations. Mm-hmm. I know some people running some multi, multi million dollar companies with no college right, education. Right. Um right. but so they, back to what you said is I think when I was a kid, watching my grandma go to my
1: grandma's office sometimes, like if I missed school for whatever reason, my mom was working for my grandma at one point when I was little, little. Like I would go in there. My grandma always had all kinds of marketing stuff. She had a little letter openers with their name mm-hmm. on it, pins and, pens, and mm-hmm. cards and hats and you know, any, pretty much anytime like anybody came to her with like some kind of marketing promotion she would buy it mm-hmm. you know she always had tons and tons of this stuff and she'd give it out to everybody and that kind of kind of sunk in a little bit and then uh my next thing was is years later i ended up getting a job as a general manager at little caesars and i was there was a there was a guy who owned 23 Little Caesars, he's the biggest franchisee in Little Caesars. Matter of fact, and his stores are so much more successful than even the corporate side of of uh, Little Caesars that they would come to him, you know, for advice on what they mm-hmm. need to do to make the, the business better. You what know, was
2: he doing different?
1: Uh, I think he just uh, he was much more insertive. You know, he had cameras in every store. He watched every day. He uh-huh. Watched all his employees and managers and everything. Uh-huh. And it just that uh, you know once a month we'd have a meeting. It was just so much more structured, uh-huh. you know, and he didn't let anything slide. You know, he paid attention to everything. Like I said, he had cameras inside the stores that he would watch, you know. So I, it was just much more structured. And one thing when I became a GM at Little Caesars is they uh, they did this thing. It's called shaker boarding. It's where you send a little employee out by the street, and they got a big, you know, advertising mm-hmm. board, and it's got the logo on it. You go out there and you shake the board. Some people twirl it and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. They told me when I was in training – uh, And I was like, I was getting trained by one of the highest uh, level GMs they had. You know, mm-hmm. she was like the most decorative GM they had, right? So I was pretty privileged. Uh, we got along great. She taught me a lot. But one thing I noticed with the rest of the company is, one thing Little Caesars, they tell you to do that a lot of GMs didn't, even this GM didn't do, is you're supposed to like target kids, mm-hmm. right? You're supposed to, because this is cheap pizza. You know, it's in and out fast. That's kind of their promotion, mm-hmm. And, you know, when an adult
0: thinks about pizza, they're not thinking about the cheapest in and out. No, not I'm being... thinking about square pizza, deep dish, the little small pepperonis, yeah. I want some bell peppers chopped up. I don't like the long ones. You know, yeah, I've got an idea exactly what so I So what they would do is,
1: what they were supposed to do is, you're supposed to have a minimum of 15 hours a week of somebody out by the street oh. shaking the board, right? And you're supposed to buy these little graham cracker cookies. They're shaped uh, like the little uh whatever their logo is, right? And you're supposed to give these cookies free to every kid that walks in. Oh. And I never seen anybody do it. And I've and I've heard about a lot of managers, they would dock the numbers on the hours uh-huh. for the shaker board and for to try to help their own labor. You know? Uh-huh. They would say they didn't didn't do it, you know. Uh-huh. And so right off the bat, as soon as I became a GM, I got out of training, got my own store, I ordered like two cases of these cookies. And I told everybody that works for me, my entire staff, every single kid comes in here, they get one of these cookies, you know, because I had like a two month window when I first came a GM where they weren't going to like really hold me to the like the, the standard. They want me to come in there and get used to everything and and, uh, you know, really adapt to become, a, you know, have my own store. So I had two month window where expenses weren't that big of a deal. Right. You know, I'm sure they were, but they gave me a little more leeway than everybody else. So I went in and I ordered two cases of these cookies and I hired somebody full time. To work the shaker board. That's what they call it, shaker board. And uh, 40 hours a week, they were out there shaking the board. And I didn't try to do anything else. Matter of fact, I called one day and she answers the phone. My sister manager's on the shift and it's not me, right? This chick answers the phone. I said, I can't remember what this manager's name at the time was. I said, Let me talk to her. I said, why is she inside the store? She's like, oh, we're got busy. I said, I don't care if we're busy or not. You put her back outside and don't try to do nothing else. I don't want her to do anything else. Right? And so. I got on to her about it, but I sent her back out there and she never, I never turned her to do anything else. But 40 hours a week, literally, she was out there shaking that board. The very first manager meeting. Can said, you
0: imagine trying to ask some kid to go do that today? <laughs> she, uh. He, he might end up in jail over it.
1: Well, she, uh, she was a, she was younger than me, but she was, I think
0: she had a kid. I think she might have been in high school. I think she might have been like 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. I'm just saying it's just hard to get them to, to do anything that's not real simple or they can't use their phones to, to do. I just told her in. from the get-go that was what her job was going to be. So your grandmother took you to work. Her her daddy took her to work. I learned it from, <clears throat> from everybody around us. I didn't get to go to work with my parents. Well, I kind of did with my mom. But what you described and what she describes is what we talk about is a lot of what's missing. You got to see work now kids go to the playground they don't go to my grandma's office
1: well see when i when i went to that first manager meeting they've got a printlet that printout list right and they they rank each store by like 20 different categories right and so like i made sure like we're going to give every kid these cookies and we're going to shake them for 40 hours a week Mm -hmm. and i don't care for one i had a little bit of extra money to waste the first couple months right so when i walked into that manager meeting. Uh, my my uh district manager, which I was pretty cool with, his name was Rob. He came over to me and he put the the rankings down in front of me and smiled. I said, "What's going on?" He said, "You ain't seen the rankings yet." I said, "No." He said, "Look at it. I was the number one store out of all twenty three. Wow. The very first month I was a GM. Wow. Between my food cost expenses, my labor, increase in sales, you know, like there's like a twenty punch list list that you they uh-huh. rank your store on, right? But I was the number one out of twenty three stores the very first month I was a GM." And I wouldn't expect anything like that. You know, I was expecting to be better because they had some crummy GM in there before me. He didn't know what he was doing. Matter of fact, when I got transferred over there, I I told my district manager, I'm like, this dude, he was just a fill in to be a GM. You know, he wasn't even supposed to be a GM. He was just filling at the moment to help keep the store afloat. I told him, I was like, I'm going to run this store. You know, it's you You might as well go ahead and find him somewhere else for him to go Mm because I'm going to run this
0: store. So, kind of so did, you, did you already see it when you got there, or you just do you want to be management material? You want to be the boss. What, what, what's the secret sauce when you walk in there and you're able to tell someone confidently, "I'm gonna be your boss someday"? For me, it's just I know I can outwork most people. I just, just out hustle
1: them, get you there. Just, just my drive alone. It's just being able to know that that they're not gonna be able to outwork me. And then it don't matter how skillful you are. You know, I think that that today people who are extremely skilled don't, try, don't put a lot of effort into things mm-hmm. because they don't have to. Uh-huh. You know. And I used, I used to teach my oldest son us a lot growing up. I'm like, son, you're not the most skilled person. You'll never be the most skilled person. You are athletic, but you're never going to be the most athletic. You're going to have to outwork everybody uh-huh. else. I've had this uh-huh. conversation with 30 times. Yeah. And I told him, I was like, you know, you have the ability to outwork anybody, and you can do whatever you want, and you can beat out anybody
0: you want, but you're going to have to outwork them. Yeah, Kobe Bryant's got a great story, and I know you're talking about basketball. Um, he said, "I'd get up in the morning at seven. I'd be at basketball practice by eight thirty. I'd basketball practice till eleven. Most basketball players don't open wake up until ten or eleven. They show up the gym at noon." By the time they're seeing me, I'm at my second practice of the day. And mm-hmm. so I out-hustled you by four or five hours. And if I did that enough times, I'd be far superior basketball player. Uh-huh. And he was. And he was. Far superior. Uh-huh. Far superior. I love Kobe Bryant. I've
1: uh, listened to pretty much everything is ever recorded on him. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I love Kobe Bryant. Uh, I always have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've uh, seen it work. You know, just putting the effort extra in that a lot of uh, nobody else was doing. I've seen it work, and then um, I've kind of already had some ideas on marketing and seen marketing work. Just really didn't. Uh, at this point, I don't really know how to market on my own. I just know how to outmarket other people. Uh-huh. You yeah. show me how to do it, I'm gonna outperform everybody else. Uh-huh. You know, and I think working for Jeff gave me the opportunity to really kind of understand the logistics of marketing a little
0: better, how to target. People specifically outside the box. And, um, and we, we we learned how to target people in their eyes. We were putting out signs and bandit signs, and we had learned that bandit signs made we got more phone calls when they were eye level from your car. Mm-hmm. So when they were down low on the ground, not so much. Mm-hmm. When you had them way up high, not so much. But when you had them on that sign about four and a half to five feet high, You got a lot of phone calls. We would zip tie them signs. I still think we invented the zippy. People were zip tying signs now. Yes. Yeah. Nobody was zip tying. Nobody was zip tying. Nobody was zip tying back then. You You know what a zippy is? Hmm. So, so you've gone to stop sign and seen a a chloroplast sign on there. Uh So, 2009, I guess 2010, when we started doing it, nobody was putting them on stop signs. We had bought some zip ties, Uh and we learned real quick the 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 code enforcement officers could turn them real fast and pop it off real quick. Uh-huh. So we beat them by putting two zip ties on the chloroplast. And you can't, you can't do it. So if you don't have clippers that clip through it, then that sign's staying there. And that became our secret for like five or six years. Nobody carried around a pair of It always clippers. seemed like we were one step
1: ahead of them. It always seemed like we were one step mm-hmm. ahead of them. I remember one time I was doing some marketing in Houston for us. And putting out bandit signs and stuff, and, and I remember getting a call. I think it might have been Jeff that called me. I getting a call from the office saying that coca pines must be right behind you because they're picking up signs <laughs> you're putting them out. And I said, "Well, I guess I
0: need to pick up the pace a little bit more." You know,
2: <laughs> it never actually
0: caught me. You know, so uh, or they'd call and tell you. They'd be like, "Can you come get these signs?" And that was my favorite thing for them to say. I'd be like, "You betcha." Hmm. I'll be right over there, and then they call four or five days later. Hey, you were going to come pick up these signs? Yes, yeah, sorry, we must have had the wrong address. Tell me that address again. We'll be right over there. Yeah, I used
1: to always. I used to always tell them I would be out ca- for two weeks. <laughs> I'd get this call multiple times too. We'd all they'd call the office nonstop. But I get this one time. I had a cop ask me. He said. Uh, he said, who do you expect to go back and pick these signs up? I said, hopefully nobody. <laughs> 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 and uh, usually uh, every time a Coke appliance would, would call, mm-hmm. uh, which they'd call all the time, every, after we put signs out, they would just call nonstop. I would turn, I'd always turn it around and start asking questions about their credit. Mm-hmm. Of course, I never got any of them to sign up, but it was always comical to me oh, to yeah. turn the whole conversation around and start talking about their credit. And then they would get more offensive, but... I took At least we're talking about, you know, I, just leave the signs out.
0: I'll go back and pick them out. Pick them up. And of course, we never everyone back I, back. I got some tickets one time from Code Compliance, and I made the lady stand outside my office. I told her, you're not allowed in my office. You want to write me a ticket? You can do it. You're just going to do it outside.
1: Code <laughs> <laughs> Compliance was kind of comical.
0: Yeah, we had a good time with them. Uh, and, and we've been all over. I mean, we've put out bandit signs, marketing signs from here to Mississippi mm-hmm. to Tennessee to... Mm-hmm. all over texas every city in texas uh, i said it was i got to see a lot of the states around me because we put out bandit signs all over mm-hmm. arkansas was cool so it's just lots of hard work you know baron i i agree with you i think i think your secret sauce to life has been your your attitude one um like. your inner drive to be far greater than where you're at today and, and your want to be greater than than anybody in your, in your past. Um, and I think we all feel that, you know, I wished we could put that secret sauce in a bottle and sell it like the do red bull. We'd make a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we've got to tell it. And, and that's the answer to what we're doing here. And, and thank you for being on the show today and, and sharing your story. Hopefully we'll be able to have you back here, here soon and talk about politics and the government and, and Trump and the election and all the things you and I like to talk about off the air. <laughs>
2: Thank you for your presence absolutely your, your story is fascinating yeah
1: we touched on a little bit it's uh most important thing is just for me I just don't give myself an option to quit
2: you I know like I just bet. figure
1: out like I think most people when you become a, when when you're faced with a problem I think most people especially these days they get so fixated on the problem. <laughs> That they, that they can't find solutions. And for me, ever since I was a kid, I probably probably starting from sorry for my mom, never making excuses or complaining. My, seeing my grandma become successful on her own, you know, especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, a single, not, she wasn't single initially, originally, but my grandfather did pass mm-hmm. away. But, you know, a woman being a small business owner all by herself and becoming successful back then was, to me, was remarkable, right. you know. And so I just think that, it helped me train my mindset to, you know, when something happens, you know, whatever it is, whatever kind of problem you're faced with, my first reaction is to not think about the problem, but to think about solutions. Mm-hmm. And it, it it allows me to be able to advance so much faster than most people, no matter what the skill set is. Mm-hmm. You know, people could be far more advanced and skilled for me in, in anything, but most people are so initially fixated on the problem that they can't initially, initially start thinking about different you know, solutions. Uh-huh. And, and uh-huh. my whole train, thought process is, is I don't, you know, F the problem. What do we got to do to fix it? That's just, uh, you know, even every single day I'm faced with uh-huh. situations, and that's always been my thought process is it's already done. What do we got to do to fix it? And I just don't think very many people these days look at problems like uh-huh. that. They right. just so, so fixated on the problem that they, they have a hard time overcoming it, big or small.
0: So, yeah, the problems already happened. So, so move on. Mm-hmm. You know, that, let's let's not let it happen again. Let's <clears throat> fix the issues that it created. Let's 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 keep going forward. That's that's absolutely. You know, right. Got to keep going. Just forward. overcome
1: adversity.
2: Right. Yeah. right, right.
0: Not can you do it? You know, just do it. Just do it. Well, let's leave it there. Let's do it. Thank you for for coming today. Absolutely, thank you, Lynn. This is Jeffrey Davis with the Secret Sauce Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Secret Sauce Podcast. Follow us on social media at the Secret Sauce Pod to receive daily encouragement on how to find your secret sauce to life.